Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Okay, are you still fanning the flames, maybe, for revival? Hey, I'm Paul, filling in for Carmen today and all this week on Faith Radio on Mornings with Carmen. Good to have you with me as we get into hour number two. Now, we've been talking for about a week and a half now about what's been happening at Asbury University, the revival. Now, the headlines say, quote-unquote, winding down, but I don't think that's really the case yet. At least, let's hope not, if this is truly a move of the Spirit. But this past Friday... Asbury University President Kevin Brown said there's going to be a new schedule for worship services and this that have been ongoing since February 8th. The, they're concluding the public worship service uh, with this outpouring, at least at Hughes Chapel, as of, I think, today at 2 o'clock will be the end. Beginning tomorrow, they're moving services for the public onto another location in the area, outside off the campus. Asbury will continue to host Uh, services in the evenings for college age and high school students, those 25 and under. And they'll do that through this Thursday. But again, it's not like they're trying to manage the the revival. They're they're allowing it to happen, but they also understand, hey, we're a university. Our kids got to get their degree. And I kind of look at it this way. Okay, they've had this fresh breath of the Spirit. Now, let them flesh it out. Let them live it out in their studies, in their work, and may it continue and, and wherever God sends them from here. There have been lots of people, thousands of people have visited the Wilmore, Kentucky campus chapel with this near uh, near round-the-clock gathering. And again, the final pu- the, they had the final public service last night. They're a campus service again continuing till 2. Asbury officials say the unplanned revival, yes, a historic event, but also we got to return to a sense of normalcy after tens of thousands of people have flocked to the campus. But keep it in prayer. There have been reports of of uh, similar out, outbreaks of this move the spirit, you know, similar stuff happening at some of the other universities. And I'm praying, you know, being that Faith Radio is part of the University of Northwestern. I think of the universities here where I am, Northwestern and Bethel and Crown and such, and I'm praying for a move here, North Central. I didn't forget you, North Central. So <laughs> anyway, also some sad news over the weekend um, in Los Angeles. The shooting death of a beloved Los Angeles bishop is being handled handed over to for, uh, being handled as a murder investigation. Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department says 69-year-old Bishop David O'Connell was found dead Saturday at his at his Hacienda Heights home with a gunshot wound to the chest. Bishop Dave, as he was known to the Los Angeles Roman Catholic community, had been a priest for more than 40 years, was ordained a bishop in 2015. Very much love. Uh, be in prayer for that investigation and for those affected. Meanwhile, overseas right now, um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is detailing a confrontational meeting he had with his Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi. The pair met in Germany on Saturday to discuss how to manage the U.S.-China relationship responsibly, responsibly so conflict doesn't escalate to a Cold War. Blinken said he made it clear that 
there, there would be serious consequences if, number one, China provided direct assistance with, uh, with, uh, to Russia in its war against Ukraine. And as I mentioned earlier, earlier today, uh, President Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine, visiting with President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine. But also Blinken wanted to make a very strong statement direct that uh, the Chinese spy balloon incident, uh, that's unacceptable and can never happen again. Now, over the past couple of weeks, with first the spy balloon and then last weekend the shootdown of three quote-unquote UFOs, that's raised a lot of questions. What was shot down? Whose aircraft were these? What were they doing? And what does this mean for our national security? Well, when it comes to talking national security, I'm glad I could reach out. And she said yes, Elizabeth Newman from the Moonshot Group, former national security, uh, well, helper. She's, she's done a lot around national security. Let me put it that way. And she'll be joining us in one minute here on Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. See, Elizabeth, I didn't forget your walk-on song. (laughs) This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. I'm Paul filling in for Carmen today. And Elizabeth Newman, uh, Chief Strategy Officer for the Moonshot Group. She's also a national security contributor to others. And plus, uh, former... DHS Assistant Secretary for Connecticut. You, you, you've been around national security issues for a long time, so I'm glad you can join us this morning here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm so glad to be with you, Paul. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Happy President's Day. Um, okay, let's start off talking about the Chinese spy balloon, the UFOs and such. I mean, there's been so much said I listen to a few podcasts uh, on a regular basis, and they've been trying to address it, but it's like, okay, what do we know? What don't we know? What do you know? Or at least, can you try and help us put it in context? Yeah, so um, my context, when I was at DHS, uh, I did a visit over to Northcom NORAD. um, And one of the things I was struck by was we're actually a lot more vulnerable than I think the average American would assume. Um, And the places that we're vulnerable are anywhere there's new technology, because usually what happens is you develop the new technology, say a hypersonic missile, and then the defensive mechanisms for that take some time to get built up. The other places that we're vulnerable are anything that's low and slow. Um, So drones, uh, that was a big focus um, when I was at DHS is developing uh, a countering unmanned aerial surveillance uh, vehicle system, but it's still very hard to do and to do it well because anything that's low, if you shoot at it um, or somehow able to take it down, it has the potential to fall on people <laughs> or mm-hmm. assets. And so you you have to be thoughtful about how you bring things down. And when it's low and slow, our fast, amazing fighter jet capability is not ideal for it. So these balloons, it doesn't surprise me that we weren't seeing them or that um, perhaps it took us a while to see them. The Chinese spy balloon, um, varying reports right now about it may have blown off course. Maybe it wasn't intentionally supposed to be coming over the United States or reports that maybe it was supposed to actually be spying over Guam or Hawaii, which we definitely would care about that too, but it's a slightly different um, purpose. Uh, and, and certainly, look, we all spy on each other. We, it's mm-hmm. just that when we catch 
somebody spying on us, we have to make it, um, we have to make an example of it. Like you shouldn't spy on us, but we all do it. So it, it (laughs) felt weird. It felt uncomfortable to see like, Hey, there's this massive balloon flying over the United States. What are we going to do about it? And it's certainly a a great Intel uh, capture for us to be able to have monitored it and to take it down. And now they're trying to put the pieces together to figure out what new technology might be in it. Um, but it, it, it also is not, a doomsday scenario. This is kind of the the job of the intelligence community is to figure out who's spying on us and what their new technology is. Those other balloons that um, happened in the days after, basically they opened the radar system to be able to detect things that were moving slower and moving lower. Um, and that's why we were able to see them very possibly they were there all along. It sounds like the leading um, intelligence community assessment is that they probably were private, not spy mm-hmm. balloons, but a weather balloon or a um, uh, some sort of research balloon. It could be a private company. It could be an academic institution. Notably, to our knowledge, nobody has claimed them. That's <laughs> the part that gets some- me. Yeah, it could be that maybe they have been claimed and they're just not being public about it because it could affect a reputation or perhaps they weren't supposed to be flying where they were were flying. Or maybe something flew off course and they don't actually know that it's their balloon, right? So there's a couple of theories there that are actually not at all – they're benign. It's Mm -hmm. not something to be concerned about. Um, But it certainly has made the public more aware of this vulnerability that's been there for, you know, quite some time. Mm. I was wondering why didn't didn't they just use something like because when they shot down the the first balloon and falling into the ocean any of that 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 array that was hanging beneath beneath it could have been would have been damaged I mean couldn't you have used something like a Harrier jump jet to hover over it and <laughs> I don't know I, I'm thinking here you know. <laughs> I, I appreciate the creativity and, and maybe in the future, I bet there's somebody in a lab somewhere coming up with that, like better way to, to take down balloons as opposed to, you know, sending, you know, multi-million dollar planes and missiles. Yeah, at, I know that at relatively, you know, tiny little balloons. Yeah. Anyway, when we get back, we have to take a break, but when we get back, we want to shift to the topic of mass shootings, which, you know, part yeah. of being a part of the department of uh, Homeland Security is a big issue. And so we want to go back because, well, Michigan State is going to be resuming classes today after last week's deadly shooting. And they they realize the rest of this semester is not going to be normal. After stuff like this happens, I mean, how do you go back to quote-unquote normal? But we'll be addressing those issues shortly here on Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I want to wake up. I want to restart. Put the drum beat back in my heart. I need to be revived. Bring me back to life. 80. 80 is the least last I heard number of mass shootings. 
here in the U.S. since the beginning of the year. It's only February 20th. And I'm Paul filling in for Carmen here on Faith Radio, talking with Elizabeth Newman, who's a uh, former uh, former assistant secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. And Elizabeth, I first off have a hard time taking that in. I mean, it, again, February 20th, we're not even two months in, fully done with the year, and here we are, already 80 mass shootings. It is heartbreaking. Um and you mentioned Michigan State University yeah. that carried a lot of the headlines last week. You also mentioned Bishop Dave. Um, he actually doesn't count in the statistic because 80 mass shootings, the definition that the Gun Violence Archive uses is for or more people that have been injured or killed, not including the shooter. Um, but there was there were shootings in Coldwater, Mississippi, Columbus, Georgia, Memphis, Tennessee, New Orleans over the weekend. Um, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking and devastating. And it, it feels like we're fraying, like um, something has gotten worse. And in fact, since 2020, there have been over 600 mass shootings per year. There's been a drastic uptick in the last wow. few years. Wow, that is hard. Now, let's go a little deeper because I know oftentimes there's everybody you hear some people talk about you know tighter gun regulation and registration gun control so on and so forth but again and when people think mass shootings they think of Michigan State they think of Sandy Hook they think of stuff like that mm-hmm. where you see you know just some person they're still trying to figure out the story behind the the shooter at Michigan State but oftentimes there's a known reason, there's a known motive, and there's known circumstances. It, it, what I'm basically trying to get at, how can, even though, yes, these are all mass shootings, which by definition is what, four people killed or injured in a shooting. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. But that can't, in, in dealing with these issues, because they're not just one issue, they're issues. Mm-hmm. How do we properly, in your opinion, address those things? Yeah, so... The statistics can leave us feeling really helpless, like there's nothing we can do. And in fact, a lot of the commentary I see, especially um, uh, I'm a conservative by, you know, political spectrum. So I often listen to a lot of conservative commentary and and often it's like, oh, you know, it's it's a hard issue. You can't regulate a hard issue. And I totally agree with that. Um, And I, I'm not an expert in gun control stuff. Um, I will tell you that from my partners in law enforcement, they they do think that there could be more done on that side and make their job easier. So I, I think we should be open to that discussion. But what I've been really taken with in, in the last few years, what I've spent my time and energy on is understanding the research um, that underpins what we would call prevention, the non-law enforcement side of prevention. Mm-hmm. So this this is um, trying to understand what what brings somebody to a place where they feel like they need to commit an act of violence. And originally, this research was um, kind of came from two fields. One is um, FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit, and the Secret Services Secret Service also has something called the National Threat Assessment Center. They study mass attacks generally, and then you have the counterterrorism community that's been studying why do people radicalize? Why do people become an extremist? So you can have a mass attack that is not ideologically motivated, and so therefore it is not an extremist attack. But what we have found is that regardless of your motive, some of the 
background in your life tends to be fairly similar. So people that um, are more likely to commit an attack tend to have a couple of key factors in their background. They tend to have uh, recently endured some sort of psychological distress, which is not necessarily mental illness. It just is, um, uh, it could be depression, anxiety. It could be mental illness, but it, uh, I think the default assumption is like, oh, this person is just sick. And you're like, well, yes, clearly they are because they committed this horrific attack. But they're not necessarily mentally ill in the way that we define it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, most um, at, attackers, like when they studied, you know, 40 years of attacks, um, the level of mental illness is no more so than the general population. So it's not, oh, they're mentally ill. It's psychological distress. It's some recent trauma in their um, in recent years, like in the last year or two, some sort of life trauma um, and humiliation, some form of grie- grievance. Those are the three primary drivers or factors that we see in um, a mass attacker's uh, background. Now, you could have those things, and that does not mean you're going to go commit an act of violence. The key issue is, if we know that those are some of the key drivers, what can we do to help people who are going through a major life uh, traumatic event or who have endured humiliation or have some sort of grievance? And I think what's changed in our society, and COVID just rapidly sped this up, um, is we used to have more connections to people, um, yeah. more societal um, bonds, uh, more family units, and and that provided protective factors. So when you went through that life trauma, when you went through that humiliation, you had people in your life that could help you walk through it. And I think we just have more and more people that are alone and isolated and don't have those protective factors anymore. So I think one of the amazing things about the church in this moment is that we actually have the answers, the actual correct answers <laughs> that, that God g- gave us on, on what we do with grievance, what we do with humiliation, what we do when uh, life throws us suffering and trials. Um, and obviously, it's they're not pat answers. It is no. about discipleship and Christian formation, and and it is deep work that has to happen to build those resilience factors. But we can certainly, as believers, come alongside somebody that is hurting and help them walk through it in a healthier way. Um, so I I am very hopeful that, you know, hope and in, in, I realize that in the light of many people still still dying day after day, this doesn't sound like hope, but in a decade or two, I think we will have a better systems in place to be able to identify when somebody needs help and get them help well before violence becomes something that they even think about. Um, so I think that there's a path here that can help us redo it, reduce the violence we're seeing. However, it is going to take a long time. And that that still means that we're going to be dealing with uh, communities heartbroken mm-hmm. uh, with these mass attacks for the, for some time. But I do think the church has a, such an amazing opportunity here um, because we do have the answers that uh, so many people are looking for and and feel hopeless and and in that hopelessness they they turn to violence. You know something? I, we could go off for a long time on this very issue. That the God gave, God created us to be relational beings, and when yes. people are living outside or not outside of relation, well, yeah, outside of relations, if they're isolated, yes, <laughs> when we turn on ourselves 
we, we as we turn too inward, we just it, it yeah. And so you're right. Having that sense of community is so important. And wow, it it really does speak to COVID exacerbated it, but definitely yes. it's something that's been hanging in there. That, that there there's a there's there's not more than a book there. I tell you, but um, there actually <laughs> have been books I'm sure written on it. But speaking of books, uh, just want to take a quick thirty seconds. So you got a book coming out next year. You've been working on that's why you haven't been talking with us much. Quickly give us the thirty second elevator pitch about your book, Kingdom of yeah. Rage. Yeah, so um, I am exploring, I'm, I'm putting my counterterrorism hat on and trying to explain um, to the conservative and Christian communities um, what extremism is and how it has um, started to take place in certain parts of our community um, and then what we can do about it. So it it addresses some of these very things. Uh, I think the church has the answers um, to a very hurting world. And I also think that there has been um, some sickness that's taken place in parts of our churches. And we, we need to be honest about that and uh, and try to help people um, come back to their first love, which should be Jesus and not um, politics or um, our country, all, uh, you know, which are good things that I, I think in certain places we have made um, idols and ultimate things. Um, but turning back to our first love of Jesus and then being um, that balm to a hurting world. Mm, yeah. um, so that's that's the the brush broad brush stroke of the book. Thank you. Well, that's been Elizabeth Newman joining us here on Mornings with Carmen again, and hopefully sometime in the future we can have you a little more regular. That'd be kind of yes, cool Yes, I again. look forward so, to that. This is Mornings with Carmen, and here's Breakpoint. For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Maybe you are reciting that with me. Maybe you have that verse memorized. Maybe you have studied that verse. Let me ask you a question. What is grace? What is is grace? Have you studied that? Have you... More importantly, have you meditated upon that? Joining me in three minutes is Craig Evans. He's a professor at at Houston Christian University and author of the book, What is Grace? Meditations on the Mercies of God. I so enjoyed reading the book and I enjoy, I'm enjoying, I look forward to talking with Craig here in just a moment here on Faith Radio. Well, again, thank you for listening to Mornings with Carmen. Without Carmen today, I'm Paul Perot. So what's got your mind today? What are you really thinking about right now? Or should I say, what are you meditating on? Are you meditating about something about God, maybe his grace? To that end, I am excited to have Craig Evans. Craig's a professor down at what is now Houston Christian University. And Craig, thank you for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen. Good to be with you. Uh, you know, I'm looking at a book here. I have, I have it in my hand. Something I read a few weeks ago called What Grace Is, Meditations on the Mercies of God that you wrote. It's a, it's a quick read, but man, it was so good. And I want to start out by the very fact, your subtitle, Meditations on the Mercy of God. I want you to start by talking about 
meditation. You're you're a scholar. I mean, you you have you know you, you could talk and you did in the book from many different perspectives as far as an academician, but. Wow, it was so accessible, and also it was a meditation. For you, define meditation and how it applies when we're looking at grace. Well, that's a very good question. In fact, you're the first to ask me that, and I'm glad you did, because there's a difference between meditation, which obviously involves thought, and just thinking about something. And I'm an academic, and so we do a lot of thinking. We're thinking about uh, interesting questions in history or interpretive questions relating to the biblical text. And we might not do much meditating. And that's an interesting thing. It might almost sound oxymoronic uh, initially. But you know what? When you meditate, it isn't just thinking. It's when you stop and mull over the significance and the big story and the ramifications of these big questions, which we address. You know, we, we study scripture. We ask what is going on here, what has been revealed here what is the meaning of this text? But meditation, what it does is it widens, I think, the scope of our thinking to say, to ask questions like, and how, do this, how does this relate to my life? How does this impact on the way I live? And that sort of thing. And, and you know, we're academics, and we don't always do that. We're not necessarily very good at thinking about how a text impacts our life. We, we, In fact, sometimes I think we deliberately move away from that. What we want to do is keep it all academic. And, and in some cases, that, that's actually forced on us as professors. And, mm-hmm. and some of our listeners might think, you got to be kidding me. You know, you teach theology, you teach biblical studies. Surely uh, the, the meaning of all of that impacts, but not necessarily. And so when you meditate, when you give some thought to it, you're asking yourself, how does this really impact the way I live? How does it impact the way I treat others? And that's what this uh, this book is all about. It isn't so much showing that God is gracious. It does do that. It does look at texts that speak of God's grace. But more importantly, where we live as human beings, how do we extend grace to one another? So I was very concerned about that horizontal dimension, grace toward one another. And I thought, I gave gave it some thought, and some of these parables in Luke are just beautiful examples of that. And in the patriarchal narratives in Genesis, we have some tremendous examples of that. So that's what meditation is, asking yourself, how does our theology, our faith, or what Scripture teaches, how does that impact me in my own life and impact my worldview with respect to grace? How does it impact the way I treat or act toward others? Mm, Yeah. And even from a non-academician standpoint, I mean, oftentimes we'll have a Bible reading plan. We're going to, okay, I got to get these verses read today and I got to get those. And and we, we just read it and not ingest, not, not really ponder it like you're you're talking about here. And you take us through grace in this book. Again, the book is called What Grace Is? Meditations on the Mercies of God. Craig Evans is our guest right now here on Mornings with Carmen. You start by helping us meditate on the words around grace that the Bible uses. I want you to start there with us because there's a couple words, hopefully, I'm not a I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but heen and hanina is am I saying it correctly? It's pretty close. Yeah, hain and hanina. 
Okay. And uh, yeah, that's the vocabulary of grace. There are some other variations of it. And what, uh, what I wanted to start out in a simple way uh, and say, you know, there are a whole bunch of names that come from this word grace. And of course, people don't even know that. Names like Anna, Anne, Hannah, and so forth. And even in some languages around the world, male names, not just female names, that reflect this word grace. And so it was relatively unknown as a name in antiquity, but because of its powerful message in both Testaments, and especially in the New, it now is a common name. I think that's really neat. I do too. Actually, you mentioned one of the names, which is Ian, which is my well, my third child. That's his name. So, and I always thought it meant beloved, but it even goes deeper than that back to to Grace, which I thought was great. Uh, Craig, do you go to movies much? Uh, not too much, uh, uh, especially since the pandemic. But I never was a big movie goer. I, I guess. If, if I'm not at home reading books and writing books, I just don't get the work done, do I? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that, but okay. But if I were to go, da 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 da, you know what I'm referring to, right? That's right. I sure do. You, okay, what is it then? Well, you, you're that's the main theme song for Star Wars. Those notes, some will call a motif in what's going to be the overall theme as well as the soundtrack. And when I was reading your book and you, you brought out uh, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, and a motif, a theme was built there that is repeated so often. Just like in a movie soundtrack, those notes may be repeated in different chords and in different ways. But bang, it was there. I, after you brought that to my attention, I was reading through some of the uh, Psalms about the same time and it's quoted or referred to again. Tell us about that passage. He, he, again, Exodus 34, six, through, 6 and 7. It's an important passage that really sets the theme of God's grace. Well, it, it sure does. It's astounding uh, what has happened. You have in Exodus, Moses is on the scene, his whole story, his life, how his life is spared. Uh, you can see God's providence at work. He ends up in the household of Pharaoh. Uh, and then through one step after another, you can see God's hand at work in his life. And there he is raised up as the deliverer, as the leader, as the lawgiver for the people of Israel in fulfillment to promises and covenants made long ago with the patriarchs. You know, he confronts Pharaoh. The plagues happen. He leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. This is what we call Exodus. That's why the book has that name. And out they go into the wilderness, and in short order, they find themselves at Sinai, where God speaks to the people. The people are terrified to hear God's voice, and, and the covenant is established. And of course, we all think of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, but it's a much bigger picture than that, because there's a covenant that's made. You might say, it's a little bit inaccurate, that before the ink is dry, Israel has violated the covenant. And I can tell you right now, this was a hugely embarrassing thing in the history of Jewish interpretation of Scripture. As you might imagine, the rabbis, they love Moses, they love the Pentateuch, they love the story of Exodus, they love how God humbles Pharaoh and rescues the people from Egypt. And it's so humiliating that they, I'm sure these rabbis are thinking, if I had been there, surely I would not have done this. 
But here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, having seen the most dramatic uh, evidence of the presence of God, the saving work and redemptive power of God in human history in the Exodus. And here they are, the very voice of God, the thunderings, the clouds, everything happening on Mount Sinai where Moses is. And he's gone a week and they think, "Uh uh-oh, maybe he's died. Now we don't have a God. And so Aaron foolishly, Moses' brother foolishly, has the people gather up gold. And of course, he lies about it later as though it's somehow a miracle that this golden calf jumps out of the fire. He says to them, here's your God. This is the God that will lead us and so on. And it's just outrageous. And the rabbis are so embarrassed by this centuries later that they often don't even refer to it as the golden calf. They just say the incident. (laughs) I mean, it's just, you can imagine. And so God is very angry. Moses, of course, is incensed. He actually throws down and breaks the tablets, which of course symbolizes the broken covenant. Smoke hadn't even cooled the writing on the stone. And here we have this egregious violation of the covenant. And so God says, look, I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, no, please. And he intercedes for the people, give them another chance. And God says he will. And the passage that you mentioned in Exodus 34 is that chance. And this is where at the end of Exodus 33, Moses says, can I see your face? And God says, you actually can't. No man can see my face and live. But he will allow Moses to catch a glimpse of his back when he passes before him. And Moses is behind a protective rock. There's just a little crack in the rock. God's hand covers it. And as God passes by, he says, the Lord, the Lord, full of mercy and grace, which I I don't want to digress, but that's alluded to in John's gospel in what we call the prologue, the first 18 verses of John. This grace of God becomes incarnate in Christ and we have seen him full of grace and truth. It's actually alluding to this very passage. Mm. And so what this passage teaches is God is willing to renew the covenant. And this foreshadows the promise of a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. It foreshadows the words of institution when Jesus shares the bread and the cup with his disciples and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It anticipates that. And it shows that God is forgiving and merciful. Even when his covenant is broken, he will renew it. And so Moses catches a glimpse. And for Moses, this would have been Mm eye-popping. He would have realized our God isn't just the creator of the world. He isn't just the covenant maker with the patriarchs, our fathers. He's full of grace. Mm -hmm. And that's what this book ultimately is all about, catching a glimpse of God's grace, which then models for us how we treat one another. We're talking And of course we're all aware of the politics in recent years. And I mentioned that in my uh, preface at the beginning of the book. This is a season where we need grace one toward another like we've never needed it before. Amen and amen. <laughs> amen, Craig. Craig Evans, my guest. I'm Paul Pro filling in for Carmen here on Faith Radio. As we continue in just a few moments, Craig, you just mentioned about um, how this promise, this proclamation that we find in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness gets played out. You already hinted at it already in the New Testament. We're going to try and pick up there because we only have a few more minutes. But again, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul Perot. This is Faith Radio. Prayer is such a gift. I love to pray. I think people sometimes overcomplicate prayer or try to craft perfect prayers as if God needs to be impressed. God just wants to hear what's on your heart and mind. He just wants to hear the sound of your voice. He wants us to turn to him with great expectation and faith that says, I don't have the power nor the resources, but God, you do. Or I don't know what to do, but my eyes are fixed on you. Or God, thank you. Thank you that you're good and that you've revealed yourself in ways that I can comprehend. And thank you for doing all that you do in every moment, even the stuff that I don't know is happening. Help me today and help me not miss the divine opportunities you've set. I want to see you today, God, so show me yourself. Prayer's not complicated. It's a gift. And you can exercise it every moment and in any circumstance. Start each week with a moment of reflection and prayer with the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional Email. You can sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com. There's only grace. There's only love. There's only mercy and believing. Well, again, thanks for listening. I'm Paul filling in for Carmen here on Faith Radio this week. And we hope you join us with Lent just a couple of days away. We do have our Reading the Bible Together podcast as well as study, and we hope you're part of that. Find out more. Sign up at MyFaithRadio.com for this free study during the Lenten season. Of course, meditating is what we're hoping you'll do as part of that and what we're talking about right now. Craig Evans is my guest. His small, very wonderful book, What Grace Is Meditations on the Mercies of God. And Craig, you were just talking about this statement by God to Moses and how it's foreshadowed actually picked up on in the New Testament, and we got only a few more minutes here, so let's look at just one of those areas where it comes across, and if in the, if you can do this in like five minutes, great, but helping us look at this in the parable of of the, um, oh, I'm trying to think of which one, because I could go either way. Let's do the Good Samaritan. Let's do the Good Samaritan and how you see it there. Yes, of course. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's a very ungracious attitude on the part of the Jewish people towards Samaritans. And I, didn't, I don't have time to go into all that history. And by the way, I want to be fair. There was a very ungracious attitude on the part of Samaritans toward the Jewish people. So here's this antipathy. And so a man asks Jesus, and he's a scholar. I, think, I like to think of him as somebody like myself. He's a professor. And he asks Jesus, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When I die, I want to be in in a right relationship with God. Good question. Jesus appreciates that. And he says to him, well, what is written in Scripture? And this is the part I really like. It's Luke chapter 10 that we're talking about, beginning at verse 25. He says, what is written in Scripture and how do you read? Which means, how do you interpret the Bible? Because you can use the Bible as a weapon and beat somebody over the head. And the man says, well... What's written in the Bible is, and he cites the Shema, you love God with all you are and all you have, and you love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. Do this and you will live. And there's a real interesting interpretive question there, too, about the meaning of Leviticus, where, which is what they're quoting, Leviticus 18, 19. So the man is very perceptive. And so he asks Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? And of course, literally, the word neighbor, and this is true not only in English, but also in Hebrew and in Greek, the word neighbor just means somebody who's nearby. 
Right. And so he says, okay. And he, and he answers the question with a parable, which is what Jesus frequently does. And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. So this guy's on the road to Jericho. He's a Jewish man. He's, it'll be assumed. He's left Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jericho. He gets mugged on the highway. Three people pass by. The first one is a Jewish priest. The second one is a Levite, who's basically a priest in training, a seminarian, you might say. <laughs> okay. And neither one stops. And they, you know, you can hardly blame them. It's a dangerous spot. They don't want to get mugged. And of course, there's the possibility the man is actually dead. He's beyond help, which case you could have corpse impurity coming into play, disqualifying the priest and the Levite from service in the temple. So both pass by on the other side, but the Samaritan man stops and helps the man. He extends to him grace and mercy. He cares for him, takes him to Jericho, pays for his lodging there, having treated him, bandaged him, and so on. And of course, the passage, the parable is presupposing a passage in 2 Chronicles where a prophet tells some Samaritan men to do exactly that with mm. wounded Judeans. So he asked the man who then proved to be neighbor. And the man answers correctly, and he doesn't offer any excuses for the first two. He says, the one who showed mercy. And I'll tell you, you know, he's alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 7 that says, when you come into the land and these foreigners try to trip you up with their idols, show them no mercy. Well, Jewish interpreters applied that wrongly to Samaritans to justify their antipathy towards Samaritans. When that man said, the one who showed mercy, he is alluding to Deuteronomy 7.2 and 7.16, the two passages that are cited, and he's canceled it out. I think, in my view, Jesus won him over. And so he's not only identified the correct person, the Samaritan is the one who showed mercy, but he's canceled out that bad interpretation that justified wrongly antipathy and hatred towards Samaritans. And I think that, that's a beautiful moment where Jesus' teaching guides someone. It's not confrontational. It's not antagonistic. He guides someone onto the right path, and that person has taken it. And I just love that. And by the way, that's, you know, I know we don't have time, but we could say the same thing about the parable of, of the prodigal son. Again, it ends on a very conciliatory note. Mm -hmm. If you understand what's going on in context, it again exemplifies grace extended from human to human, which is what God's will is. Oh, there's so much good stuff in this uh, book, Craig, and I thank you. It's, it's, it's a quick read, but wow. So again, Craig Evans, thank you for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen. It's, it's been a joy, and there's so many different ways we could have gone with this. You know, you mentioned the thing about how the prologue in John points back to that grace and truth mentioned, and oh, it was so rich. It's like, it definitely was worth my time and worth the read. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Okay. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul filling in this week here on Faith Radio. You got something to say if you're living, if you're breathing. Again, this is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. I'm Paul filling in this week as Carmen takes vacation. As we often urge you to do, please pray the news, the stuff you've heard today, and whatever you come across, pray for it, and then see where God causes you to get involved. For example, East Palestine, Ohio, I'm sure you've heard about the train crash, the derailment of back on February 3rd, which has left a lot of people scurrying because of the chemicals released and such. Yes, people are talking about that. What you don't often hear about is how 
your brothers and sisters there. The churches are active. Case in point, uh, Abundant Life Fellowship Church. They have, as their one of their catchphrases, invite the stranger. And it took on a new meeting for the congregation and Pastor uh, Jeff Schott. Uh, one day, they were the congregation was dis- together discussing how they can help. Schott got a phone call from New Watford Mayor uh, Shane Patron, who asked the church if they'd open their doors for the Northfolk Assistance Center distribution for their in you know Northfolk Southern's inconvenience payments to the impacted residents, and it's like yeah, he that is uh, the the mayor knew our church according to Shock and its commitment to the community and helping out, so they naturally went to them to help out. So pray for that church, pray for other churches involved, and if you can support them in their efforts as well. Well, I'm Paul. We'll talk to you tomorrow here on Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.